poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Philosophical Friday on Chasing Poker Greatness with your hosts, Duncan Palamortis and Peter Birmingham. and welcome to another episode of Philosophical Friday. These are your co-hosts, Peter Birmingham and yours truly, Duncan Palamortis. Peter, uh, how are you today and who do we have again in the podcast today? I am very well. Thank you very much, Duncan. And this week, we welcome back our first returning guest, Duncan. It's it's great. Our first returning guest, um, the ever-popular Mr. Andrew Brokos, who... Just this week had uh, a little bit of good fortune, shall we say. Is that right? You're very welcome, Andrew, by the way. Thank you. Am I really the first returning guest? Have you guys not been doing this this long, or are you just really good at getting guests? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, we've only on our like 50th episode, uh, give or take. So yeah, we're doing it. I, I will say, Thinking Poker was going back to the well by the time we got to 50. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. So that, that, that that's good to know. That's good to know. But uh I mean, you're very popular and people, you know, were, were very happy and they, they definitely wanted you back and we, we have some some questions and, and things like that. But uh, like Peter said, something very interesting happened to you this week, right? Why don't you tell us more about it? What happened with uh, tournament-wise? Yeah, I, I ended up getting second place in a tournament that America's Card Room was calling their the main event of this poker series that they've been running, although... You know, poker sites and the WSIP has started doing this as well. Uh, you know, you just you get more players if you call a thing a main event. So the series is still going for another week. I think there's another main event this weekend. Um, I don't know, like what it, what it may, but it was it was a large field. You know, it was a multiple day one, sixteen hundred ish people, and uh, ended up taking second in that, wow. which is um, you know, someone said congratulations, but the truly no. I mean, I won't I won't say that I've never experienced the congratulations thing, but okay. that was not this. Like I was, uh, I think maybe in like sixth place coming into the final table um i really 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 did not deserve to do better than third like it, it was a huge maybe not a huge punt but like there was a person who was very solidly second place in chips and uh, i mean i i truly was like giggling with laughter when he managed to get himself eliminated in fourth place i was just like i was like giddy you know like it was uh it, it was such a bout of good fortune for, for me that um by the time we got to heads up i was like i mean a i was out chipped like 13 to 1 so it wasn't like i came in with an expectation of that i had much much chance of getting first but even second felt like uh i was already batting well above my uh my weight is that no punching above my weight that's the metaphor i'm looking for that, that, is, that's, there, that's... is there a small insinuation in there andrew that there, there may have been some icm mistakes at the uh at the final table or i i suspect um you know i don't i don't want to call anyone out and it's not it's not the very <laughs> strongest part of my game but uh i i will just say that i certainly made a lot of like i i think it's quite possible that I made more money as a result of that shove than the person who called in one made. That, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yes, and you mentioned uh, one word there, which uh, I've never heard before, but I 
can totally relate to. Uh, how did you say it? Uh, congratulations. Con congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Which is <laughs> which reminds me, like on a, on an MTT of like sixteen hundred people, fifty ninety nine are going to be disappointed, and one is going to be. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and I do. I mean, again, like I, I, I certainly know the feeling of that. And and there is, especially when you come in, because again, this was like, you know, coming into day two, I think I only had like an average number of chips with still like 150 people left. So, you know, you tell me the beginning of day two that I'm going to make like the final two tables. That's already like a well above average response. I think like I have had the experience, um, you know, sometimes when I've been deep in, in like the WSOP main event where uh, I said the, the first time I experienced this, the, um, I ended up in 2008, I think I was um, 35th in, in the WSOP main event. So like coming into day seven, I was second in chips and I ended up finishing 35th. So like that was kind of, you know, I had made a bunch of money on days one through six and that felt great. I did lose money on day seven. Like, right. <laughs> so, you know, I, there is kind of the feeling of like, yes, obviously the tournament went very well for me. I won a lot of money. I do not look back on it with like regret or anything like right. that. But it is true that I probably lost like a hundred thousand dollars that day. And like, I did feel that. Yeah. That, and, and like uh, many years later and in general, for people who play tournaments, what is your approach to that feeling? Because a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, they play for a long time, they cash in, and it always that, you know, lingering feeling of failure. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I can say what, what makes sense for me. I know that there are people who are, they, I mean, they really just like, they want to win and they're just extremely competitive and, and driven and, it doesn't strike me as a super like happy existence. Like you're not going to be happy often if you're playing an MTT and you're only happy when you win, especially if you're playing large field tournaments. Now, those people might win a little bit more consistently than I do. Like it may be that that that, that drive and the desire to avoid the pain of losing you know, pushes them towards uh, a level of greatness that I'm like not quite going to achieve because I don't have that same drive. And I mean, A, I don't know that I would want the trade-off if I could of saying like, oh, I wish that I experienced that. Like, that I wish that my life were like mostly constant misery, so that I could like occasionally, uh, you know, win win tournaments more often than I do, or something like that. Um, I, I don't know that that's a trade-off I would want, but it's also just not not the way that I'm wired. Absolutely, no that that that, that <laughs> makes that makes perfect sense. And uh, um, I remember when we, you know, I was in in your podcast and we were discussing we were discussing tournaments a lot and. Uh, a, a lot of ideas um, um, came up, and one of them was, you know, like, is it is it worth it? From many perspectives, you know, the idea that we're risking very little, but we can win a lot. But then there's also the idea of EV. It could be a low EV from a cash game and all of these things. But um, do you think tournaments in, in 2023 are still worth it? And what should people uh, think about and consider in order to decide whether the, it's, it's, it's good for them? And if that question is not too broad. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of considerations there. I guess one big one is I mean, there's certainly more variance in tournaments, and that's not always a bad thing. Uh, as you pointed out, like I think some people they might not fully grasp that this is what they're doing, but that premise of well, I want to be able to put up five hundred dollars and have a shot at winning a million, like that's you saying that you enjoy variance, and that's fine. There's nothing nothing wrong with that, but like you, that's that's what you're getting there. <laughs> that's a lot of variance, um, and. Uh, so like that has an upside for people 
from the perspective of a professional and like as much as we just had that previous conversation like i do enjoy winning more than i enjoy losing and it is you know the nice thing about cash games is you do win a lot more consistently than you do in tournaments you much more often leave the casino with more money than you you arrived with or uh, you know log out with more money than you logged in with or whatever um so what i often say is like if i could get the same people who are going to play in a tournament with me for X stakes to instead sit at a cash game with me and we're all going to be 100 big blinds deep and we're going to play for the exact same amount of money, I would love to take that deal. Like I would I would happily, I find cash more interesting in any way. The more I've studied tournaments, like I'm starting to appreciate some, like there are some you know additional strategic depths to even like very short stacked tournament play that I didn't used to appreciate. So I, I, I am having a, a slight more appreciation for it. But uh, nonetheless, like I do think Overall, like deep stacked cash is, is a more interesting game and the edge is potentially larger, the variance is lower, like all those things are nice for all those same reasons. Like that's why people don't want to play cash games for the same, like people who are less good at poker than I am, they want the variance. Um, they like, and you know, there's like a lot of things about tournaments that, that make them appealing for people. Um, so I, I think there are reasons why for an equivalent amount of money invested, you can expect to uh, have a better hourly rate playing tournaments but that does come along with a lot more variance and you know, like the my my co-host carlos uh he likes to focus on playing small field tournaments which i mean that's kind of a nice middle ground of you do make a lot more final tables um and you get a lot more wins when there's 100 people in the field instead of 1500 or something um so you know i, I think that's that's a nice consideration i do also think there's like tournaments are in some ways less stressful i mean that kind of sounds weird because in some sense a, a tournament is just like a misery machine where you just sort of keep cranking up the stakes until eventually you lose like because people like to complain about well i was running good for like i always run bad in the most important spots like yeah of course you do because that's how you get eliminated like that's you right. you continue to run good and then like eventually you run bad and the run bad is the end of the tournament so it's always the highest stakes <laughs> but um where was i starting to go with <laughs> that <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. That, that that makes perfect sense. And it, it reminds me that, I, you know, if you do like a, a back of the envelope calculation, you can do like a very simple logarithmic analysis. And then you basically see that uh, depending on the size of the field, you, you sort of like gauge how many flips you got to win, roughly speaking, right? right? I mean, yeah. you know, two to the 10 is about a thousand. So for every thousand people, you need to win about, you know, 10, 10 coin flips, give or take. I mean, of course, you're going to have some edge. It might be nine or something like that, but you still need to to win. And exactly what it just described, you know, like at the peak of your your uh, your uh, performance, if you will. I mean, at some point you have to win. You have to win those flips or something, uh, something close to it. Um uh, speaking of which, what are some highlights from from your session? You know, like uh, going back and remembering uh, because you said it was it was multiple days. Yeah, it was it was two days. It was two days. And what are some uh, interesting things that, that that happened that that come to memory? Funny, interesting, strategic, anything you anything you want to share? Like exciting moments, anything at all? Uh, well, I think part of it is it's kind of anti-exciting um, okay. and okay. and this is part of like i think what requires to to play poker professionally or to want to make money playing poker which regardless of whether it's literally your profession if you want to make money you do need to treat it uh like like a profession you know you are not going to get the same thrill or enjoyment from the game that that a recreational player is i think we talked about this some the the last time that i was here um so you know a, a lot of I was making a lot of really tight folds, essentially, as with, with like two tables remaining, and especially at, at the final table with the, the chips being distributed the way they were, essentially with, with six of us remaining, there was one person who had like 60 big blinds 
another guy who had 40 big blinds. And then there were four of us who all had between 10 and 15 big blinds. Right. So with the chips distributed like that, essentially my, my main objective is get third place. Like that's, that's kind of what I'm gunning for. And I think there are some people who are uncomfortable saying things like that out loud, that it's something that feels like an admission of like, no, you have to play for, play for the win. That's like more manly or whatever. Um, like I, I, I guarantee you what makes you the most money is, is playing for third in that situation. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, yes. So like, I, I was really focused on like doubling up is not worth that much to me. Even if I double up, I'm still in third place. I was already in third place, not by a lot. It was very close between the four of us, but it was like, there is like the impetus is really on other people to, um, even if everyone is playing perfectly, even if everyone perfectly understands all the ICM dynamics that I'm explaining right now, it's still correct for me to be pretty conservative. And one of two things is going to happen, right? Either those people who are shorter stacked than I am are going to get eliminated, and that's I make money immediately when that happens, or they're going to double up. And if they do, then I become the more short stack. And now it does become correct for me to take more risks. But the impetus really ought to be on the people with the shortest stacks. So there were a number of times where it was like, you know, I have a pretty good hand. I have, I don't know, like ace five suited on the button. It's like, that's a pretty safe shove. Probably no one's going to call me. Even if they do call me, I'm not going to be in, in terrible shape. But there's just not that much gain for me of like picking up two big blinds in that scenario compared to like how bad it is for me if I get called and I get eliminated or lose most of my chips and double up a short stack or something like that. So, you know, it just, it didn't strike me as being worth the the, the kind of risk reward of doing that. So it was, it, it's sort of, it, it's boring and it feels Add, you know, like if you're like, I would like to be getting more chips, and I know I probably would have more chips if I just shoved with this hand. And so there's that kind of discipline that that's required to not do that. Like, that's kind of the work, because otherwise I'm just like sitting in front of my computer in my pajamas, you know. So like, it's not it's not work in many senses of of the term, but it is it is work in that sense of needing to do things that are kind of like painful or, or unpleasant or whatever. And um. So it was nice to like, I mean, A, to get rewarded for that, to see that uh, So you know, th those folds become even better once you do have, like if your opponents are going to take unnecessary risks. Uh, so what ended up happening, the way this person who was, you know, very solidly in second place got himself eliminated in fourth, uh, he raised and was like a pretty good spot for him. He was raising into the two short stacks. So, you know, there's like a decent chance he's going to take the, the blinds down. And then the player who had more chips than he did three bet him which we might expect because he does have more chips like he can three bet very aggressively that's true like there's a very good chance that this person is just like three betting him light and then the guy who was in second place went all in with queen jack suited and he got called by ace king offsuit and even there he's not in terrible shape like it's i don't know 43 57 or something like that like right. it's pretty close to a flip um but he didn't win that flip and he ended up getting fourth place when he could have very easily folded his way to second so you know i'm not saying it's that doesn't strike even if you're going to have some some bluff shoves there which maybe you know you are supposed to uh i don't think that's the best hand for it i think you'd rather have an ace in your hand when you make that play um but so, i mean that was certainly the most fun moment for me of the term was a hand a pot that i wasn't even involved in and just like you're just watching it happen and you're like oh my god i never thought you know like it's probably <laughs> worth like thirty thousand dollars to me just to like to see that outcome um and you know to have that happen without there was no like i wasn't even involved in, in the pot you know and that's that's like the essence of tournaments is that you make money by folding and usually it's not that dramatic but that's really the thing that makes tournaments different from cash games and it's always true even from hand one of the tournament it's true that like folding has an ev that is slightly greater than zero it's just that there are certain situations where that ev is much greater than zero and so it's not enough to say oh shoving would be plus ev here because you have to compare it to the ev of folding which you know, in this case was was quite high
This is this is incredibly interesting, and and you're mentioning so many points here. I really do not do not know where where to start. I mean, you're mentioning the idea of uh, presumably what you're doing being boring. You're mentioning the idea of the huge ICM considerations, how the short stacks are really the ones at risk, and conversely, the big stack can actually have uh, can take advantage of that. Uh, but also, if they don't know how to take advantage of that, they can on, they can end up shooting themselves uh, in, in the foot. You're talking about the idea that folding doesn't necessarily have zero EV like in a cash game because you have to compare to opportunity cost that is very real in tournaments. <laughs> the idea that potentially, you know, there are situations where uh, because of uh, ICM considerations, you, you need to, to make a lot of tight folds. I mean, these are incredible points for the listener. Uh, one question I, I, I have for you is um, when you use the word boring, um, perhaps for, you know, for a, an outside observer, but did you yourself feel bored or how was your internal experience when you were in control of that situation? How did Andrew feel when he was able to make these tight falls and see them come to fruition? What is your internal uh, feeling at that point? Well, the, the seeing them come to fruition part was, you know, that, that was like giddy excitement when that happened. Okay. The thing is, you don't always see that. Like sure. sometimes you do what I'm doing and you end up in sixth place, you know, like sure. a couple sure. of those short stacks get lucky and then Absolutely. it becomes correct for you to take a risk. And, you, and then you wonder like, oh, maybe that wouldn't have happened if I had shoved that hand. I mean, if I'd shoved that ace five suited on the button, maybe all this would have been, would have been different. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of got the the good end of the fortune stick sure. <laughs> this this time around and so that, you know that that's not painful um one of the things that also was fun about the like final table experience was i i did have my my friend and co-host carlos was uh sweating me while i was playing and uh you know i want to be clear this is all happening after the hand was was over um you know I, I would tell him like you know these are the hands that i focus frankly he he knows a little bit more about icm sort of stuff than i do so it helped a lot to to navigate those doubts because i mean I, di I didn't know this stuff cold like i was kind of i understand the basic principles of gto but i have not like i have not spent hundreds of hours grinding or sorry, icm but i haven't spent hundreds of hours grinding like icmizer or something where i like know exactly what is the, the shoving range on the button in, in this scenario so i did have the nagging doubt of like oh maybe i was supposed to shove there i don't know like i, I guess this is a fold uh, you know i i, I was kind of trying to, to reason it in real time so to get the um the validation from him of saying like, oh yeah yeah that's a good fold i like that you know kind of encouraging you to continue to or just making it easier to continue to do that that difficult thing to um have someone who's validating and have someone you can brag about to it because you know we can brag about like the the big wins i you know rake this big pot or whatever but like you know like we we're i think we we're saying this some last time as well you know, the the big folds are at least as important as you know making a hero call or something like that but they don't feel as good because chips aren't getting push to you and um so so you know being able to to brag about that and, and give yourself a little dopamine hit for making a good fold uh that's a big help uh, absolutely and uh and it's interesting that you're mentioning the big folds because i always feel and i don't know if it's uh it's the same for for you or other poker players or, or you peter um the the idea that uh when you can actually make a big fold there's something about feeling in control. It's like, oh, I control that hand, you know, like I was able to to do it, you know, and it's uh, to me, that's a I don't know if I would call it a dopamine rush because it, it's, it's a different type of feeling, but it, it feels like a huge win. It, it feels like, oh, I'm, I'm in the zone. I can I can actually make 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 that fall. I don't know. Do, do you have like a, a similar a, a, a similar feeling or is, is it different? Is it different for you? 
I, I do. And I think that's what you want to be trying to cultivate is that idea that your satisfaction is coming from playing well, or it's maybe, I mean, this is not something that I personally do, but it reminds me of things, you know, people who, uh, they wake up early and go jogging, you know, and they say they wake up, it's still dark outside and they go run at 5am and they run four miles or whatever. And it's like, I think a lot of them would say they don't enjoy it exactly. You know, it's like, they don't, they don't love the alarm going off at 5am and going out in the cold and, and running and all that, but like they feel good about having done it. And I think some of that is that same sort of control or self-discipline or whatever that, that you're talking about. So I think you do want to cultivate that pride and like, I did a hard thing that I know is good for me and is correct. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And uh, any, anything uh, else interesting that happened there? Anything, anything funny, any, anybody like, uh, ch uh, you know, chatting or maybe uh, people. There's no chat, no chat on ACR anymore. You just get emojis now or you get, uh, you get little animations. Oh, little, little, can, little, I, little. I can like, I can launch a rocket ship at my opponents or I can, I can uh, blow like a party horn if I, if I win a big pot or something, I can throw a tomato, but no, I, I can't call anyone uh, racist slurs anymore in the chat box. <laughs> I've seen actually the rockets. I mean, I was, I was playing there recently and I, I've seen that, but I didn't know there was no chat. I mean, I, I never chat with anybody, so I thought that the people didn't didn't. Chat. I didn't know that they deactivated. That that's actually good to know. Oh, I'll uh, tell you, this is a funny. I mean, I don't know if this came up in that tournament exactly, but it's a funny thing that happens on, on ACR. One of the animations that they've added is if there's a if there's a bad beat, if somebody sucks out on someone, they sort of there's like an explosion and like right, the screen right, shakes yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But the way that they define a suck out is just anytime someone goes from being a favorite to being not a favorite. Right. So sometimes there'll be a time where like a blank comes on the turn. But like a big draw was like technically the favorite on the flop because they had like 52% equity or something. Right, so like right. a total nothing card comes on the turn and ACR is like, holy shit. And like the screen <laughs> shakes and like it's. I remember and I remember that they were doing that. It's like, what happened? It's like, oh yeah, yeah it's just totally bricked. Yeah, six That's of a... diamonds. Crazy. <laughs> six of diamonds. Um, how about any. Um... Any deal considerations? Like, where were there any any deal considerations, or uh, they were completely out of of the table to begin with? Um, I, it, it never really came up. There, there's an option on ACR. I don't know what they would do since there's not chat, but um, you know, you you can click a thing that says like I'm interested in a deal. So one person at the table had that had that clicked. I guess if we all clicked it, they would it would time out and they would like show us some. Or maybe we just have to take an ICM or they would show us ICM numbers and then you, you my guess since there's no chat is sure. they would just show you numbers and you would just click yes or no, but there wouldn't be a room to negotiate or whatever. Um, but no, I so I think in that scenario, it would not make much sense for the, the big stacks to take a deal. Um, and this is just a limitation of the ICM model in general is that it's not it's not forward looking. It's not taking into account that that person who has all the chip, the guy with the 60 big blinds or whatever, that that person um, should be able to use that large stack to continue to accumulate chips. So ICM just like takes a snapshot of, you know, if, if we divided the prize pool now based on the proportion of chips that you have, here's what you would win. So it really it undervalues big stacks. Um, and this is a scenario where the big stack was particularly valuable. So I didn't, I mean, I did not click to make a deal, even though I would have been open to it because no one else had it clicked except that one person. And I, there was very good reason why the big stacks would not be looking to. There was also one person at the table who like, I mean, I was just saying it was like correct to be tight, but this person was like, had been too tight for a long time. And like, clearly it was just, uh, a more amateurish player than some of the people at the final table. So I wanted to outlast at least that person um, before I you know, even considered making a deal. Cause I was like, I still think I have a pretty big edge over at least one person here. That's, that's actually, that's, and that is an important, sorry, Duncan. I was just going to say, and that that's obviously a very important uh, factor, Andrew, like when you look at 
when you look at the the sort of the the caliber sometimes of your your opponents if you have any sort of like i mean obviously if you're at like a, a, hot, a super high roller or something like that where sort of everyone is a known player and you realize there's probably not going to be too many icm mistakes but if you have a sense that there are some recreational players or less experienced players in the at the final table that's going to weigh into a decision there to you know these 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 guys are probably going to make more mistakes than I will in this situation. I'll be yeah. I you you'll be giving up money at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, uh, listen. Congratulations again. I mean, you make mm -hmm. the, the poker community proud. I'm sure a lot of people were, were were cheering for you. I mean, I was very happy when I saw that on, on Twitter. So you know, uh, con con congratulations again. And uh, uh, just how, how how does it like overall? How does it how does it feel? You know, like second place on such a big tournament. It's I mean, I, I've been doing this for long enough that it's not like um, I mean, I'm still more affected by the short term. Like it surprises me still how much I'm affected by the, the short term. But it's not. Um, I don't know. I mean, no, nothing has really changed in my, in my day to day life <laughs> as a result of it or anything. Uh, you know, I, I'm still going to be playing like all the same stuff that that I always want. Like the, the constraint for me for a long time has been skill more so than bankroll. That's like limiting what, what I play or like is the reason why I'm not playing uh, certain certain higher stakes games. Sure. Um, so, yeah. And and I mean, it, it it is a nice confidence boost, especially when you're playing these like really high stake or uh, large field tournaments, which is pretty much all I'm playing these days is, um, is these like big field tournaments on ACR. Um, it's like, you don't, you don't get those victories very often. And, and mm -hmm. I, I, I know intuitively that it's like not really supposed to happen that often, but it does still, yeah, it's been like two years really since I've had like a big win. So it does, uh, it, you know, it's, it's nice to have that reminder of like, it is possible to win these things. Like <laughs> It's it a thing that happens from time to time. Yeah, you're in the mix anyway for, you're in the mix for that result at some point. Yeah. And you do have to believe that because I mean, it's, and this is something I, I tell like when I'm coaching people, and I think this is true for cash games as well. It's really dangerous to go in believing that you're going to run bad or believing that you're in a slump or something like that. You know, like downswings absolutely exist in the rearview mirror. Like you can look back and say, I've had bad results recently and I think I've been playing well. It's just, I've been getting unlucky. Like that's a thing that you can empirically recognize, but that of course has no bearing on the next hand that you're going to play. And if you start to believe that it does, you're not going to take the appropriate risks. You know, you're going to say like, oh, I don't want to take a flip here, even though it would be like totally correct for you to take a flip because you're getting odds to call or whatever, or it might not even be a flip in the first place. You just like, there's a tendency, I think, to fixate on, on worst case scenarios or to assume that things are just never going to work out for you. And then that becomes a self-reinforcing spiral where like, because you're not taking the risks that you should be taking, you're not bluffing in spots where you should be bluffing or calling when you should be calling or whatever. Um, and then like, you actually are going to have worse results because you're not playing well. Absolutely. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, Peter and I, we had an episode where we were talking about superstition and essentially we're talking about this uh, self-fulfilling aspect of it. And uh, even though, you know, superstitions, you know, for, for many reasons, we can say that uh, um, they, they, the items to which they're attached, they may not be real. The acts themselves are very much real and they could affect uh, outcomes. And by that, I mean, even though, you know, like a black cat may not really be unlucky, if you really think that that black cat is unlucky, it could affect the way you think about it. It could affect the way you you deal with things. So sometimes wearing your lucky shirt can actually help your mind get off of that thing and not think about it. And that can actually help you make the right decisions. I, we, we call them like the, the low cost uh, sort of like uh, superstitions, like the ones that 
that it, the, the, it could be potentially low cost, but it's, uh, would, would you agree with that? That, you know, sometimes, you know, we can, things can become like self-fulfilling prophecies in some sense. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I don't, I don't really have a thing like that. Like I know, I guess Michael Phelps famously, you know, kind of has a, a whole routine that he goes through before he, he swims. And uh, a lot of that is kind of, as, as I've had it explained to me anyway, is kind of the exp experience of like a lot of things going well and, and kind of that you're, you're, I guess your body or your mind, or there's no distinction between the two, whatever, um, you know, but you, you have, there's an association between I go through all these steps and I listen to this music and I, you know, take my shirt off at this time and, you know, whatever all he has to do. And then that's very strongly associated with success. And because like the, the culmination of that is, and then I win the race. And so like the, everything about his kind of being is expecting that that's going to, to happen. And it is, you know, entirely plausible to me, or I certainly don't think I know more about it than the people who are saying that this is true, that like the, uh, you know, that affects your, your physiology and your psychology and, and whatever else. Um, maybe that means I should have some things like that. I, I don't really, I, I don't have a lucky shirt or, or whatever, but, uh, I don't like roll my eyes at, at people who do as long as they're not imposing costs on other people. So I do think that the, like, you know, asking the dealer for a, um, what's it for a wash because, uh, right. people feel like they've been getting dealt bad cards or whatever. Like that's kind of annoying because then it, that is like, Slow there's thing. like, if you want to wear your lucky shirt, fine, as long as it doesn't stink. But like, you know, again, like don't put the cost on other people, you know, as long as it's like a, a thing that, that you're not asking other people to pay for, then it seems fine. Absolutely. It has to be low cost. And I would agree with that, too. And you also mentioned uh, short term, right? I mean, you mentioned, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, like, uh, sometimes you're affected, uh, even to this day by by short term, um, which um, it's actually very interesting, because I think it's part of a, um, a more general idea, which um, uh, Peter, Brad and I we were talking, we're calling it the, uh, the proximity principle, if you will. That tendency that we have as human beings to basically concentrate on something on the temporarily and specially close, like you know, the thing that happened more recently is more important than the thing that happened ten years ago. Even if the thing that happened ten years ago could be more 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 impactful, and um, it, the reason why I'm saying I'm saying this is: Are you familiar with Peter Singer's "Child in the Pond" argument by any chance? Uh, I am, yes. You you are, right? So uh, would you mind telling us uh, the, this argument? And then I'm going to ask you a question for, for the listener. I also have a little bit of an, of an excerpt. Uh, I, I could also read it for the listener. Or if you want to describe it for the listener, whichever one you feel more comfortable. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll let me do my best, and then you can. Uh, if, if I get anything wrong, you can <laughs> you can correct me. Uh, so my understanding of it is sort of. I, I think this actually kind of connects the, another thing that we talked about last time, which is I was saying that our our sort of moral reasoning around people who are very close to us is better than our moral reasoning for people who are like distant from us. And I guess that maybe applies to time in addition to space. But right. um, you know the. It, it, Basically anyone, imagine you're wearing like a really nice suit or something, expensive clothing, several hundred dollars, and you pass a lake. And I don't even think you would have to stipulate that it's a child. Like there's a person who is who is drowning, uh, whom you could rescue by jumping into the water. But in doing so, you will ruin your, your clothes. Like it's a, about as close as we have to a universal agreement of a moral principle is like if i mean obviously there might be some danger to you like there might be other reasons not to do this but if it really were the case it's just like oh you're just going to ruin your thousand dollar suit but you can save this person's life like most people are going to i mean a expect that other people would do that and b do that themselves i think um 
so then the question is like, well, we all have that opportunity all the time, right? And in fact, we could do a lot more than save. Like, I have a thousand dollars right now that I could spare. Like, I I could use that to um, you know help a lot more than than one person. And sometimes I do that, but like I don't do that to the full extent that I possibly could. Um, and you know, most people don't. So I think Singer Singer's argument is sort of like, well. If, if you conceptualize it that way, you know, maybe you should, <laughs> maybe you should be giving away more money than, than you would, because uh, you essentially be jumping in lakes and, and saving people all the time at a cost of much less than a thousand dollars. That's that's exactly right. And it's very well put. I don't have anything to add to, to the argument. But I guess there's there's two questions that that arise. And by the way, for the listener, that's how. I coined the term uh, proximity principle from exactly that uh, very example. But before we go there to the proximity principle, I just want to ask you, Andrew, what do you think of the argument? Do you see any? Do you see any any problems with it? Do you see any? Uh, do you like it? Do you not like it? What are what are your thoughts? Um, I I like it. Mm-hmm. I I find it a useful like, which I think is is kind of what Singer intends for it. Um, I find it a useful motivator, you know, like mm-hmm. there's always a part of me that's like, well, you could also just keep a thousand dollars and spend it on things you like. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm uh, like, I, I think it's, it's kind of a, a part of being alive or at least living in our, in our modern society of kind of like navigating these, these things of just like our, our daily existence, sometimes in ways that we have control over and sometimes in ways that we don't, like we are kind of constantly causing harm to uh, other people and or foregoing opportunities to help other people. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't claim that I have the the perfect balance in in my life, but I'm happy to be encouraged to um, be doing more on the like helping people side of things and the like doing less harm to people side of things. And there is a, a kind of innate drag against that, which is my own like, you know, laziness or comfort or or whatever else. And I think a lot of the world is built to encourage me to lean into that. You know, I, I think much of, of our world is is designed to discourage me from thinking too much about the consequences of, of some of my like consumption decisions or um, the way that I live my life and, and things along those lines. And so I, I, I find it useful to be mindful of those things, to think about who, who benefits from those things. Um, and to recognize that I need to, that's a force that I need to like push back against uh, that, that if I just sort of go along with with the tide, I'm not going to live the kind of ethical life that that I think I should. So like that there is an effort that's required to to push back against this this, you know, just be selfish, only think about yourself kind of um kind of kind of reasoning. And I think that you know being familiar with that argument from Singer, like I think that's a useful reminder of, okay, well, here's what you really believe in. You, we, we know that you believe that because I mean, I've never been tested in exactly that way, but like I, I you know I, I I at least agree in theory that like that is certainly the right thing to do is, is rescue the, the dying child. And so I think that you know ha- having that as a um a, a reminder is useful absolutely. it It does work as a as a great reminder. um. There is one uh, aspect of it, um, I, I guess, if we were to uh, imbue some constructive criticism uh, to it, uh, and perhaps I can, you know, I can share like my my, my story, uh, which as it relates to this, I used to think exactly like that, uh, and to the point that I used to wear a little black ring around my finger to remind myself that everything that happens in the world 
to a, a, a smaller or a greater extent, I have responsibility for, right? Because like the, the butterfly effect, that somehow I have contributed. If there is a war happening somewhere, somehow I have contributed because, you know, it's, you know, like there is this sort of like a domino, a domino effect. And I used to like feel that, you know, we have to remember every day that we have responsibility to, to all those things. Um, the the constructive criticism I would say to 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 that argument is that I would argue that it ignores what I would call the the proximity principle the fact that we are sort of like wired to um, deal with the things that happen to us again both temporarily and specially near us so that we can avoid overflow and and the reason why i'm mentioning the the little story of mine and the little thing that ring that i used to to wear for like almost uh, almost two decades to the point that uh, my 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 skin started to deform after a while is that basically i was ignoring the proximity principle i was being you know sort of like overflown with all of that in information and and i was not able to uh, sort of like deal with all of this, if that makes sense, Andrew. I don't know if, I, if I'm making myself clear. And, and the argument, of course, makes makes perfect sense. We just have to remember that we're better dealt with the things that happen around us versus like in the immediate surrounding um, versus the extended surrounding, even though, of course, the radius of that extension depends from person to person. Elon Musk radius is not the same as, you know, uh, ours, for example, or or yours, mine, and so on and so forth. I don't know. What 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 do you think about that? That seems plausible to me. Um, I would, and this also just constructive, um, not even criticism for, from my side, but just to ask you to elaborate. Right. What what's the reason you would say for why you're better off dealing with with things that are proximate? Um, I, I think from an evolutionary standpoint, so that to to pre to preserve the energy of uh, like uh, if we were con consistently thinking of everything, all of the um, triggers of our environment, both the immediate ones and the extended ones, uh, we would essentially go mad. Like, I mean, we mm -hmm. will not be able to process it. So for, for practical uh, per perspective, I would say, like for just uh, evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's like an, an important concern. The um, I, I think a... I don't know, solution is, is maybe a, a, a firm way of putting this, but I, I think I've, I've encountered some advice along those lines because I often have that feeling as well of, of kind of like, I mean, it is it is literally too much. Like, you know, it's trying to carry the, the suffering of literal billions of people um, is, is, is more than, than a person can handle. And right, part of the problem with that is like, if you end up then becoming less effective or you're just sort of like wallowing in in despair or whatever and not helping anyone, like that's, that's certainly not helpful. Um, but the, the, there might be a different way of focusing that energy other than just what's closest to you. And that might be just sort of like picking a, a particular cause and saying like, I'm I'm going to focus on, you know, what I can do with this one organization or what I can do with uh, homelessness or something along those lines. And except like, that's not me saying homelessness is like the single most important thing or that other things aren't problems or anything like that. But it's just like, we're all, we're better off if we all just sort of like, pick a piece of the rock and start chiseling is that a reasonable metaphor absolutely <laughs> um, absolutely know, yes uh, th that that's better than like uh you know everyone just kind of haphazardly trying to to do everything at once and and, and to your point i just want to clarify that i use the term closest metaphorically which is why I said that, you know, like, you know, Elon Musk's proximity is not the same as other people. Like, so his proximity is 
basically, for example, it would encompass the entire world in some sense, because again, he says something on, on Twitter and everybody hears about everybody who has a, a Twitter account that is hears about it. So um, I, 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 I would agree with that with that 100%. Like, you know, the uh, if you can reach uh, that charity, that's part of your circle, that part part of, of, of your proximity. But if there's like, let's say, a, a war happening in uh, a household, or like, let's say there's some domestic abuse somewhere that you don't know about or you know i mean you don't have a, a direct access to that maybe you know you shouldn't necessarily like you know blame yourself for everything that's going on in the world because it can get incredibly overwhelming yeah and i think there is also a problem of i mean there are reasons to think that you're going to be more effective at handling situations that you are more familiar with right like the the history of uh, i mean i would not all these organizations are well meaning but i think even the history of like well meaning organizations that have decided to like uh, we're going to fix the the I mean, even even to decide that a certain thing is a problem is already kind of an exercise of of presumed authority to say that, like, you know, okay, there, there's there's a, a problem of. Uh, Shall I think of a good example off the top of my head? But just, you know, in, in sort of a, a culture that you don't understand, or a part of the world that you don't know that well, or, or something. Uh, I mean, I think that there are a lot of dicey things that happen as a result of like people deciding that that they know how to solve this problem in in, in a different part of the world. And I will say just in, in terms of like where I've personally directed my efforts, um, one of the organizations when I do give money charitably uh, most often to is called Give Directly, which is um, they, they give money directly to people living in poverty. So that's designed to get around this problem of like, you know, I'm not coming in and saying like, oh, you know, the person living in on the other side of the world, what you really need is uh, a well. And so I'm going to come in and, and build that well for you. And, and I, I'm going to presume that I know where to build the well and what kind of well to build. And you know, the well is even what you need in the first place, all those things. And essentially, if, if you give money to people living in poverty, that they are going to know better than you are how to spend that money um, in order to make their own lives better. And it, even your idea of what it means to make their life better might not be their idea of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And and it, since you mentioned that, do you wanna do you wanna tell us more about the charity for anybody who might be interested in uh, they they wanna know more about it? Is there like any 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 website or just uh, what what should they Google or something like that? Uh, yeah, just givedirectly.org, I believe is is their website, and you can see you know they have uh, you know various numbers on there if you wanted to see like how efficiently the money gets from you to the people. Obviously, you know all these organizations do have. Uh, overhead of, of of some kind i do think in general like if you're um if you are donating money uh it very often is even if you assume that there's like additional overhead that's involved in like getting that money to a different part of the world um the money is still going a lot further uh like i think that's part of why i'm like pushing against against the, the proximity thing i do think there are people who and i don't think you're doing this but i do think a lot of people make mistakes around the idea of proximity of thinking like well i have to look out for the people closest to me first or people in my own community first or something like that and uh, i mean i think there are some arguments in in, in favor of that but I do think there is a big issue of like there are a lot of people whose lives can be improved by you know a literal like dollar a day in in some parts of the world and i don't think that's true for very many people in the united states and i think the particularly dangerous form of, of the like proximity principle thing is the like well i just want what's best for my family and right. people are kind of having the idea that that's not selfish because it's not for you it's it's for your kids you know who you see as an extension of your own ego but whatever you know like um i, I think like a lot of harm comes from that idea of like my only obligation is to the people closest to me. 
Right, exactly. And that's the literal proximity. And you're absolutely right. I mean, literal proximity can be pathological. You know, you're absolutely right. We're, we're, we're talking about a, 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 a metaphorical proximity. Of course, it, it needs to be defined. Uh, and there's a lot of nuance. But part of the reason why, you know, I sort of like went into that thread because you mentioned, you know, the short term impact and how important it can be. And I feel that the, the proximity principle, this time it's the temporal proximity principle, has something to do with it right i mean it's it's very real we often talk in this podcast about that that feeling you know like the thing that just happened to us and how important it is and how sometimes you know we're talking about tilt you know sometimes it can throw us off our game uh, sometimes how people feel they they hit a, a temporary uh, variance and they're like oh my god i mean i can't i can't make a hand and then you go back to your graph and you see that this little variance is like a little blip you know it's a nice 45 degrees and all of a sudden we're we're complaining about this but the fact how that even if that's the perspective, it's still very difficult for us to in in the heat of the moment uh, to deal with it because the the proximity principle in some sense is ever present. It doesn't it doesn't go away. So we have to sort of like respect it in some sense. You know, it's there. Uh, that perspective is 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 not uh, easy for us to do it in, in in the heat of the moment. It's not like we're not grateful for that everything that happened to us. It's just that our brains operate in in in, in that way in some sense do you feel do you feel that way or do or, or do you feel that this is something that us as poker players at some point we, we need to to we need to overcome we don't need to think about like these uh i mean it would be great to overcome it but i don't um i don't know how realistic <laughs> that is so i think it's better to have ways of of dealing with it and you mentioned one important one just in in speaking there which is you know looking back at your graph and you know your long-term results are meaningful and it is useful to look at okay i am uh you know I, i've been consistently winning for a long time and so even though the last few weeks or whatever have felt bad you know i there is a track record of me doing well now certainly in poker that's not a guarantee of anything like plenty of people who are winning five years ago are not winning players now so you know that's not a a total panacea but i do think it's useful to counteract negative messages that, that you know to be you know dicey not necessarily wrong but like not not well founded uh that, that that your brain is giving you um and then i also find like this is one of the biggest benefits i feel like i've gotten from like studying game theory and having more of a sort of mathematical foundation for my game i know that there are some people who are very like intuitive players for for lack of a better word kind of playing playing from gut and many of them you know are quite effective like intuition is, is a real thing i believe and it's a it's a potentially a powerful thing the problem is that it's also um i don't know sensitive is not quite the word i'm looking for but i think that your gut a there's situations that you're not going to be as familiar with where your gut is not going to be such a successful guide um but also there are times where your gut might not want the same thing that your like brain <laughs> wants right. where your gut just like really wants to book a win or just wants to take a pot from that asshole on the other side of the table or uh you know so i i think like i don't always trust my gut to want the right things and so i do find it useful to be able to say like i'm not I'm not doing this because I want to win the pot. Like, of course I want to win the pot, but that's not, you know, that, that's not like a sound strategic reason to to do a thing. So to to at least have a, a a gut check, you know, to be able to say, I have some sense, I certainly don't have like solver tables memorized, but I have some sense of what I think a solver would probably tell me to do in this spot. And then is the thing that my gut is telling me, is it perfectly aligned with what the solver wants to do? Okay, great. You know, that that's all I need to know if it's not aligned then i have to try to imagine like okay well do i have a good reason for why i want to do something differently like i i try to i guess intellectualize 
uh, like, why do I have the feeling that this person is, is going to fold? What, what can, can I actually find a foundation for that? Do I have reason to, to doubt it? Have I been losing this session? So, you know, one, um, real good piece of advice. I say one, one of the best, like strategy, um, episodes we've done on, on thinking poker in recent years was with, um, I believe Ori Pelig, is that is how you pronounce his name? Um, he's an Israeli pro, uh, works for upswing, really entertaining guy, very smart game theory wise. Um, and essentially he was like, if, if you are, I think the example he used was like getting check raised on the river, holding aces. Mm -hmm. And he was like, if, if it feels close to you or you don't want to fold it, fold it. Like everyone, right. <laughs> nobody wants to fold aces, right? right. <laughs> like right. You're, right. you're always going to be like a little more attached to aces than, than you should be. So if your gut is telling you like, oh, this is a close decision, it's probably oh. not actually that close. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually a very good point. And it comes back to the things that you were calling boring earlier, right? I mean, that sometimes you just have to make these, uh, these un uncomfortable uh, decisions. Uh, and, and and Peter, you had a, a very interesting uh, question for Andrew too. Uh, the, the the tweet that he put a while back. I was looking. Uh, I was looking back to your your Twitter. Just want to drag you back a bit. Just over a week ago, Andrew, to a, a tweet you put out, and it says, "I hate the insistence that anyone pointing out a problem must have a solution in hand. We should be able to establish goals as a community and work together to better align our practices." People refusing to consider a problem without a solution on the table don't really want to solve it. Now, can I just say that I absolutely love this tweet because I think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant. I wholeheartedly agree with it. Thank um, you. Please please go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really it did. It just caught my eye and it was like absolutely like why do you what? And I said this to Duncan earlier. Sometimes you have the skill to point out that there's a problem. You don't necessarily have the skills to fix it, but it's okay to point it out. And I think, yeah, there's two, I think as a society, we're too quick to kind of jump on people who, you know, say, well, that's a problem, but I don't know how to fix it. And you're called a naysayer and all this negativity is just thrown your way down. Would you, would you agree with that, Andrew? Yeah. And I will say, you know, there was, there was one, um, response I, I got to that tweet that I thought was like good pushback and, and encouraged me to think a little bit more deeply about what I really wanted to say there. And I think I, I would want to make a distinction between kind of pointing out a problem that was already taken into, into account when when a policy was put in place. So like if we say something like um, we're going to go to uh, we're going to play 10 handed for a while at, uh, at, at the start of this tournament in order to accommodate more people. And then you're kind of go, oh, I hate 10 handed. It's crowded and whatever. It's like we understand that like, that's 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 known. And essentially, like the, the decision like that was that was weighed when, when this decision was made. And um, you're not necessarily like if you have a different way of like essentially the, the tournament organizers have decided it's more important to try to accommodate more people, even if it means people being a little uncomfortable at the beginning. So just grumbling and saying, like, I'm uncomfortable, this sucks is not particularly productive. And so I do think it's reasonable in that case to say, like, well, I mean, if you have a different suggestion for how to accommodate these people, that's that's something. But I think there are also cases where, you know, maybe the, the problem you think that the people making the decision um, we're not aware of the problem that it was causing. And so, you know, essentially that discussion has not been had. This is not a question that's been asked and answered. So, you know, raising this thing and saying, oh, there's, there's this issue. And I think that you'll agree with me, like you just weren't aware of this. And once I make you aware of it, 
ideally, you would agree with me that, oh, that does seem like an important priority. And let's at least think if there's a way to accommodate. There may not be, but, you know, let's at least think if there's a way to accommodate that. And one, if we can agree on it as a community of like, okay, this is an important thing that we should be trying to fix, uh, you know, maybe there is someone who will have a, a solution to that. But it has to start with an agreement that that there's a problem at all. Or like, I think those, those should be separate questions. And so I do kind of question the motive sometimes of people who want to, you know, sweep that off the table entirely, or um, there's a particular solution maybe that they don't like. And so they they want to deny that the problem is there because they're like, well, if I acknowledge the problem, then I might have to accept the solution. And so I'd rather just, you know, deny that the problem is there. That that kind of thing sort of irks me. Absolutely. Yeah, how much, how, sorry, uh, Duncan, how much, how much of that, have, do you think self-interest just factors into that, Andrew, when people kind of you know, maybe it's adding to workload or it's just going to make things extremely difficult for them. Or how much do you think self-interest weighs into those situations? Heavily, like almost exclusively. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it is <laughs> like I, I think most people if, in the absence of, of self-interest, I think most people are not like bad thinkers. Uh, I think like when there is a clear, like logical error that, that's that's taking place, I think there's usually a reason why it's happening. Um, I don't think it's necessarily intentional like i think sometimes people are just uh i don't know our, our brains operate in, in, in strange ways like i think sometimes our, our brains are just kind of motivated to not show us certain things or we just have a lot of, of resistance or for, for various reasons around recognizing things um but yeah i i do think that it's uh i i think when when i notice things like that i i think there's usually a reason for it Right. And it, it's a very, very good point. And actually, the, the way you're presenting it, again, it reminds me of the, the conversation we had last week about compatibility, right? Because it, it sounds like you're looking for that compatibility at the beginning. You know, we can call it compatibility of disagreement, but it, at the end of the day, it is a compatibility. Like, you know, we have, you said, we have to agree that there is a problem. We have to see, we have to start from the same common place. And and if, you know, the argument is well-meaning, you know, it, it, I mean, we all have our self-interest, but we don't put our self-interest above the argument um, or above the issue, then hopefully we're going to be able to find some sort of a compromise or going to be able to negotiate or going to be able to 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 move forward uh, instead of just essentially having a war, uh, you know, basically like the two opposing uh, interests. And, yeah. and and that is a very, a very important point for sure. Um, was there anything from um, perhaps uh, last week that uh, you wanted to uh, shed some more light on or something that you thought about and you, you said maybe I wanted to say something because I know I know uh, last week we were um, a little bit short on time and uh, um, there were some things that you perhaps maybe wanted to add if something comes to mind, you know, like as there, there was something pretty specific that I remembered. I, I there was a point that I had had meant to make, and I distracted myself as I often do, and kind of went off on a tangent and, <laughs> and, and and lost it. But I think it's a good one. And it relates to the idea of like exposing yourself to um. You know, there's kind of the idea of it's important to expose yourself to like ideas that you disagree with or, or something like that. And I qualified that of I think it's even more important to expose yourself to ideas that you didn't even know existed. Like it's, ah, yes. there are certain things of like, like I, I have considered the argument that like African-Americans are inferior to white Americans and I've dismissed it. And I don't, I don't feel like I need to keep debating that with myself or with anyone else. Like I, I, I feel good on that one. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I, that's not a debate we need to keep having. Um, and then, you know, I, I think 
So I, I'm, I'm more interested in following, uh, you know, a, a Scots language activist on, on Twitter, which is an issue that I know very little about. Like, I'm going to learn more from that than I am going to learn from following some like, you know, right wing person who's just like asking questions about, you know, whether we shouldn't be considering eugenics or something, you know, like there, there's certain issues that I, I don't feel a, a strong need to like continue reevaluating. Uh, but I also think there's even within that, it's important that the, the people that you're like exposing yourself to are, are credible to you, because I do think that like the the kind of what I would consider like bad actor voices in in the mm -hmm. of which there are quite a few in, in like the the media sphere these days. Um, I don't think it's quite right to say that they're like trying to keep you in a bubble or, or try to keep you from seeing other opinions at all. In fact, I think it, it's quite common that someone will purport to give you anyway. Uh, an idea of like, here's what other people believe. And they might even bring on their show. Like, I think there's a fairly common tactic that they'll be like, they'll have the, the sort of staple, you know, liberal or staple conservative or whatever who they bring on the show. Uh, and they're, they're almost there to be a straw man. Like, even though they are technically a real like it's, it's not hard. I mean, there's what, how many billion people on the internet? Like you can find one idiot who will say whatever. And like, so I think there's, there's a tendency to want to like use that person as a stand in for like, look at this, this, look at this idiot. This person re represents all liberals. And, um, so I, I, I think there, there's a real danger of that where you do end up just kind of reinforcing your own ideas. If you're only exposed, like it's, it's hate reading, essentially. It's like, I am exposing myself to stuff I disagree with, but not in a way that's challenging my views. It's in a way that's reinforcing my views. And so I think that's like almost worse than not exposing yourself to it at all. So I think it's like you need to find people who can who who challenge you. And that's not the same thing as disagreeing with you. That's a, that's a very good and well put uh, point there, right? I mean, the idea to find people that that actually challenge you and they, they're well intended, which is very important, but they don't necessarily have to agree with you. Uh, do you happen to have like any names like, for example, I don't know, like an an example on the on the left, or some may even say far left, who is considered by many to be a, a credible source, would be somebody like Noam Chomsky, for example. I don't know if you you know you may disagree with that, but like, I, I, do you do you have some examples of people both like you know like on the left, on the center, and on the right, which you would you would consider like cre credible, um, well-intended so sources for for people to you know pot potentially expose themselves to. Um, off the top of my head, the main one I can speak to, I think, is is a person who uh, I sought out for for this purpose, uh, which is Tyler Cowen, um, who hosts a podcast called Conversations with Tyler. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how many like. I mean, I, I don't think the far right would want to like claim him as a. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's there's a lot that you know he would say that that they wouldn't necessarily agree with, but. Um, I mean, I think when it comes to sort of a, a well intentioned person who's trying to have. Uh, good conversations and bring in really a wide variety of of perspectives um so you know he'll on, on his so first off i think he's just a great interviewer in general he has a very unique interviewing style and that's one thing just as a person who does an interview show myself i do try to you know find people who are good at, at just the the skill of interviewing and i think I, I benefit to some degree from from that but i think he has a very good um and, and i've heard him and his producer talk about this uh, a good filter where it's like anyone that you hear on that 
show. I mean, I can, I'm sure I can, I've, you could find exceptions if you went back, like, because he's been doing this for years, but like, it's a pretty reliable indicator of like, if there's a person on that show, even if I have no idea who they are, and um, it's not a field that I'm intrinsically interested in, like he had an archaeologist on there recently, which like, I know very little about. It's not a field. I mean, it's kind of neat, but like, part of her point was like, it's not actually all Indiana Jones. Like it's, not, you know, like that's the, the sexy <laughs> idea of, of the archaeologist, but like, it was, it was a fascinating interview um so i mean it's, a it's exposing to a, a prince to you know just just a lot of perspectives that i wouldn't have been exposed to period um but b you know he has uh i would say like a, at least an economically like pretty conservative uh worldview and he, i guess hearing him i mean both some of the people who he brings on who are more right-leaning themselves but also like hearing the conversations that he has where it might be like maybe the guest is the one that i agree more with but you know he seems generally interested in, in kind of like hearing their their viewpoint and like challenging them i think in in constructive ways so hearing the way that they uh grapple with like the the points that he raises or whatever um i don't know i i just find it like one of the more and again like this isn't to say that i like but the, the whole point is i'm seeking out people it's right, not that i expect right. to like come away agreeing right. with him right right, but right just in terms of like better understanding what are the arguments from people where i think that there's a baseline agreement of what's important and there's just a disagreement about how to achieve it like that that i think is an important distinguisher like if 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 you're coming from a place of um i don't know it's just like the lives of poor people don't matter like if, if that's right, kind right, of your right. your your baseline philosophy like we're not i don't i don't see how we're going to have a constructive conversation like i'm not gonna i'm not going to be the one to convince you that they do um so but it, but it, it, i mean i think that there are people in the world who have very different ideas from my own about how do we improve the lot of people living in poverty and this is one of those cases where like it's okay so we can agree there's a problem and i have some ideas about how to fix it i don't wouldn't claim that any of them are perfect and i know that some of them like have been tried and haven't always had great results and there might be reasons for that and whatever but like i want to be open to anyone who is, is truly genuinely concerned about fixing that problem like i think we need as many ideas on the table as we can because i think it's an important problem and the 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 problem is that there are also there's a lot of noise in that space of you know people who are not actually well-intentioned who purport to be you know who are like they're they're claiming that that's what they're concerned about but it's they're actually just propagandists and um you know it's, it's very hard to distinguish between those and again i wouldn't claim that anyone does it perfectly but in terms of you know seeking out a more like right-leaning voice uh that's the, the person that i feel like i've benefited most from and you know have, have the most uh respect for their like uh the thing that, that they're putting out in the world absolutely and you said the name is tyler cohen did i yes c-o-w-e-n c-o-w-e-n just for the listener if they want to uh, go in and, and, and check them out. I admit I haven't I haven't listened to them, but they it, it sounds you know conversations with Tyler is the name of the podcast. Conversations with Tyler, excellent. Well, uh, again, I mean, Andrew, I mean, we want to be respectful of your time. I know last week, you know, we cut it a little bit short, so we we really appreciate you you coming you know here today and sharing your thoughts. We're really happy to to hear that you had that score, some incredible insight. This time, let, let's do it right. Where where can people find you? And we can talk a little bit more about uh, the the book the, the the proper way. So, where can people find you first of all? Uh, yeah, the number one place would be uh, on Twitter at Thinking Poker, and the website is thinkingpoker.net. Um, that has mostly at this point. It's I've been there's links on there to like 
coaching, which would be thinkingpoker.net slash coaching. Um, there's uh, the, the podcast is kind of the main thing that's that's centered on there. We're coming up on episode 400, just published number 396. So we've been doing this for over 10 years now. Um, there is on that main page, thinkingpoker.net, there's a couple of, you scroll down a little bit, there's a couple of episodes that are highlighted that I think of as kind of the best ones that we've done. So if you've never listened to the show and you want to get a taste of it, just putting on a random one uh, is not going to give you as good of a sense as if you look on there, some of the best episodes of all time um those are the ones where if you listen to that and you don't like it maybe the show is just not for you um but, you know we, we, the, the show can be very different week to week so I, I would encourage people if they've never listened before um go to thinkingpoker.net and um find those like you know best episodes of all time and, and pick one of those that that strikes you and the you know you use that to evaluate the show um and then the the books the the main books that i would recommend to people are uh Play Optimal Poker and, and Play Optimal Poker 2. Um, those are kind of the ones where I did a lot of original work and, and put a lot of effort into um, trying to explain what I think are potentially complicated or often misunderstood game theory concepts, trying to explain those in a way that's accessible and that explains their relevance. I, I think this is becoming less of an issue than it was the first one of those books was was published in 2019 so in the last few years i think you know people are starting to accept a little bit more why game theory is relevant everywhere but i think the argument is still out there a little bit of oh you know i i play with bad poker players or i play small stakes or i play live and you know the this game theory stuff isn't relevant to me and uh the way that i would address that is like i think essentially game theory is useful in any situation where you're not sure what the right play is like you know this kind of comes back to the intuition thing we were talking about before right where um if you're in a spot and you're like look i just know this guy is is gonna call like he's obviously not folding so i'm you know why am i gonna bluff here just to be balanced no I, i'm not suggesting that either like i think if you're sure he's gonna call don't bluff that's fine we're, we're in agreement um but i think there's a lot of spots where you get to the river and you're like i'm pretty sure what this person has like i think they have top pair i have no idea whether or not they're gonna call with it that's where game theory is useful because like just well i don't know if he's gonna fold so i don't want to try it I'll, i don't want to risk it i'll just check like that's not the right solution <laughs> like that's that's as bad as, as just blindly bluffing so you know if, if you're a poker player who is never in situations where you don't know what to do uh, congratulations you don't need game theory but um i certainly often find myself and even when i'm playing with weak players i often find myself in situations where i'm not entirely sure what the right play is or i'm not sure what my opponent's next action is going to be and so i do find game theory is a useful way of uh, of grounding myself and those books are designed to give you some of the tools to do that excellent no that's that's very well said and again the the website is uh thinkingpoker.net and then you can mm -hmm. click on all of these nice links there the blog the the podcast the, all the all the cool stuff the books and the the book is uh, books actually play optimal poker one one and two and and like andrew said it's just a, a way it's an extra tool in your arsenal whether or not you know you are a field player or a math based player it's an extra tool in your arsenal when um you know you're sort of like in a situation where you might be a little bit lost or in a situation where it might be simplified on the river or things like that so there's very useful information in there and again this comes from somebody who's uh, you know studied actually professionally uh studied uh, or i guess you can call it I'm, I'm technically licensed in 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 game theory i've studied at a, at a university level but the uh and i'm always sometimes skeptical in the way people are using it but 
but but but I want to just make that clear that Andrew is very well aware of that, and he he takes that into account, and you can hear that in when he's describing the book, the idea that you know he's not discounting you know the reads like a, a read trumps any any strategy. If you do have the read, go ahead with your read. But he's talking way beyond that. The extra tool in the tool work in situations where that read is either not applicable or not available. Would, yep. would that be a fair? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Thank you. No, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, uh, Peter, do you have any 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 anything else for for our esteemed guest today, or where no, can people? Just want to say, I, just to say, thanks very much for for lending us your time again, Andrew. Uh, you've been a, a fantastic guest as always. So, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank again. you both. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And congratulations again. I mean, we can't stress that enough. Yes, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Excellent. So thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in. And we will see you all next Friday. Take care. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.